What's up, everybody? Welcome to Good Wolf Radio. It's Jerry Scarlato. Today, we have a Good Wolf Books episode. That's when I take a book that I recently read, pull out some points, and relay them to you so that you can take them and put them into your life. Maybe they help you build awareness about something that you weren't aware of, or maybe maybe it's a tactical or strategic idea that you can literally implement today that can help change your life for the better. Today, we're going to talk about five points from Michael Easter's Scarcity Brain. The Scarcity Brain, as the subtitle says, says is about how to fix your craving mindset and rewire your habits to thrive with enough. Because guess what? We have enough. We have enough. We have enough of everything. We have enough food. We have enough stuff. We have enough cars. We have enough, we have enough house. We have enough everything. We have it all. We have enough. Of course, it is important in whatever area you want it to be to potentially strive to be better or level up. It's not a bad thing necessarily to want or strive for more. The question is, and he talks about this in the book, why are you striving for more? Are you striving for more because you think it's going to bring you happiness? Or are you striving for more because you think it's going to help grab attention? Or are you striving for more to be higher up in the hierarchy? Or are you striving for more because it brings you happy, like it actually brings you happiness to put the effort in, in whatever it is that you're building. So we can have more, we can strive for more, but the question is, why are you actually doing it? Most people in society or a lot of people in society today are striving for more because they think that more things are going to make them happy, whether that's more money, whether that's more food, whether that's more stuff, whether that's a bigger car, whether that's a bigger house. That's what we currently are trying to do in society. And many things that we have in our life, social media being one of them, do not make that any easier because social media brings the idea that everyone else has more and it looks like it's making them happy. So why can't it also make us happy. And if we get out of that loop, the scarcity loop, which Michael Easter calls it, then we can rationalize why we're searching for the things that we're searching for and potentially find happiness within all of it, which really is kind of what life is all about. It's about mostly doing the things that make us happy. It's about mostly finding fulfillment in the things that we do. It's about mostly being content. Now, of course, you're not always going to be happy. You're not always going to be fulfilled, and you're not always going to be content. But hopefully, maybe, if you are aware, if you make some changes, if you're willing to confront some scary things, if you're willing to be courageous, if you're willing to sacrifice some things, if you're willing to be uncomfortable, if you're willing to do all these things, Hopefully, you can live most of your life in a happy, fulfilled, content way. No matter if you're trying to build the biggest company in the world, no matter if you're trying to make more money than anybody else, no matter if you're trying to have the best six-pack ever, or if all you're trying to do is live in a house, live in a van down by the river. If, if, if you get that reference, by the way, good on you, because I'm sure many people won't get that reference. But like, if your goal is to live in a van down by the river, and that's what's going to make you happy, doing it to the best of your ability so that you're happy, 
content and fulfilled most of the time. Like that is the goal for, that's the goal for life. So five points is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about five things that are either going to help us build awareness on things that we may not be aware of. And until you make the unconscious conscious, it will dictate your life and you will call it fate. So that is the goal is to constantly be seeking things that are blind spots to you. The things that either number one, like you're literally not conscious of and you don't know are holding you back or number two, maybe you're partially conscious of, but you're blinding yourself to the fact that it is holding you back because you enjoy the thing or you're comfortable with it because we will do a thing that maybe is not the best for us because we're comfortable with it or because it's just the thing that we're doing. So the first point that is worth bringing up that we're going to talk about is we are programmed for scarcity, but we are steeped in abundance. We are programmed for scarcity, but we are steeped in abundance. So this point comes from both the introduction and chapter one of the scarcity brain of the book. Our biology evolved in an environment of scarcity. Over hundreds of thousands and millions of years, our biology evolved in an environment that did not have food readily available, that did not have shelter readily available, that did not have weapons, that did not have other resources available at the snap of a finger. And so because of that, we are biologically built to seek certain things and seek them in such a way that if put into the wrong environment, create an issue. And that is what has happened. Our environment of abundance, which we currently live in, which is not what our, our biology evolved in, but the environment that we currently live in, we find ourselves in abundance, an abundance of food, an abundance of other resources, an abundance of safety, an abundance of shelter. We have many options in all of those categories. And when you put those two things together, both scarcity, our biology built on scarcity, and an environment of abundance, it creates a potential slippery slope that we can go down if we so allow ourselves to. That slope, Michael Easter calls the scarcity loop. So the scarcity loop contains three parts. Number one is opportunity. Number two is unpredictable reward. And number three is quick repeatability. I was trying to remember those off the top of my head. Number one, opportunity. Number two, unpredictable reward. And number three, quick repeatability. So what are all of those? Um, first, opportunity is when you're doing something or when you're taking an action or when you're making a decision, you have an, uh, it is an opportunity for something. It is an opportunity for you to move forward. It is an opportunity to change. It is an opportunity to 
potentially have something more or to progress yourself in some way. The second part, unpredictable reward, means that we don't know exactly what's going to happen with this opportunity. We can make some guesses, potentially, but we don't know exactly what's going to happen. And then quick repeatability means that we can then go back to the beginning and start over again. And whenever this loop becomes tighter and tighter, it increases the likelihood that we become hooked to it, if you will. So let me help you understand this a little more by explaining where we find the scarcity loop. Social media. In social media, when you pull up Facebook, for instance, there is an opportunity for you to have a good feeling for whatever reason. It could be because you find a funny cat video or it could be because you pull something up and one of your posts got 100 likes. So there's an opportunity there that there's something that's going to make you feel good, but you don't know what it's going to be. You're, you're, not, you're not really sure. So you pull it up and sure enough, there it is. Your one picture that you put out of yourself yesterday got 152 comments, all people telling you how great you look. And that feels really good. And you didn't know that that was going to happen. So that was an unpredictable reward. Like it was a potential reward, but you couldn't have predicted that, that will, that's what was going to happen. And then you can put another post out and pull it up, whatever, an hour later and quickly see the same thing. So that's quick repeatability. You can repeat that very quickly. Opportunity, unpredictable reward, quick repeatability. So you can put a post up every hour and every hour you can pull Facebook back up and there's an opportunity for a reward and then the unpredictable reward shows up and then you can repost. So that's how social media gets us into or feeds our scarcity loop, if you will. Shopping is very similar. Shopping actually um, has become very scary uh, in a lot of ways because it is so easy to do. It is so easy to do. And we are manipulated psychologically very easily by um, forces that are pretty much out of our control. Of course, unless we're aware that it's happening. So the example that he puts in the book of shopping, I believe, is the app Timu. Is that an app? T-E-M-U? Am I pronouncing that right? Okay, Timu. I had not heard of it until I read the book, to be totally honest. Um, so, and then I was curious, and so I went and looked, and now, of course, it's all over all the stuff that I pull up on Facebook. And, oh, that's where you got that little uh, selfie stick thing? Oh, that's too funny. So Timu, apparently, I can't remember the premise exactly behind it that he explains. I think, like, basically what they'll do, and of course, most people watching this know this much better than I do, so as I'm explaining it, you know, you're going to go, yeah, duh, Jerry, like, why are you explaining it so slowly? But, like, if you're sitting and watching, they'll randomly pop a... Uh, a pop-up in front of you that'll say, hey, this thing's going to be marked down 90% for the next 30 seconds, and then it'll start a countdown. 
like something to that effect. So it's like you have to quickly make a decision on whether or not you're going to buy the thing, but you're like, oh, 90% down, like this will never happen again. Like this is the only time this is going to happen. So there's a, every time you pull up Timu, you have the opportunity for some big deal that may or may not happen, but you don't know what it's going to be. So you pull it up and this pop-up comes up for this 90% off. So you have to quickly make a decision. So it's a very unpredictable reward. You had no clue what it was going to be. So you have to quickly make a choice. And so you make a choice to buy it. But you can then quickly repeat that because there's so many things on the app for you to buy. So that's a way that shopping has built in the scarcity loop. Opportunity to buy something and have a deal. What's the unpredictable reward that's going to show up? You can buy it or not. And then you can quickly repeat that. Same thing happens on Amazon. Same thing happens on eBay. Same thing happens on, I don't know, whatever other app that has shopping built into it. Uh, the last thing is health. And health may not make as much sense, but we have pretty much turned health into a gamified um, thing, if you will. So our health currently is mostly has mostly been pushed through gamification via steps and heart rate tracking and calorie tracking and things like that. This thing on my wrist and probably the thing on your wrist is relatively new. Like these things, smartwatches have been around for maybe, I don't know, five years or so before that, like, the thing that pushed you to get in shape was your will. Like you had to go want to do it. And that's still the truth. Like if that's not the thing that is pushing you and driving you to get in shape and you're relying on this thing, an external source to drive you and motivate you in some way, shape or form, it's not going to be very sustainable. Yeah. It can be helpful. Yeah. I can make it fun. But if that's the thing, the one sole thing that you're relying on, it's, it's not going to be sustainable. But we have gamified it and made it part of the scarcity loop by opportunity, unpredictable reward, and making it quick to get feedback. So how have we done that? Well, some different smartwatch producers uh, will give different badges for things. Or I think Apple has the circles like you close a circle once you walk, have walked far enough or once you've burnt enough calories or once you've done your activities for the day or whatever it is, like you have the opportunity to close the circle. And so why, it's, it's kind of a predictable reward. So maybe it's not the perfect, I don't know, example of the scarcity loop. But nonetheless, like you have the opportunity to close the circle. And so you do enough walking in order to close the circle. But Eventually, you get burnt out because you don't, I don't know, if your will is not there to make it happen, the thing is not going to push you to make it happen. So those are three ways in which the scarcity loop has grabbed us and made us go down some slippery slopes. Another one that he talks about a lot is gambling. Gambling, I think all of us can look at because we... Gambling is easily viewed as something that is addictive and easily viewed as something that is bad because you can easily lose a lot of money. But we don't view shopping apps as something that is bad. 
and we don't view it as something that loses a lot of money because we get something in exchange. But the truth of the matter is there are more people that go broke by shopping too much than there are people that go broke by gambling too much. And so even though we can view gambling as a bad thing and that is addictive, there are other things that are equally as quote bad and addictive that catch that follow the same pattern as gambling does that follow this loop like gambling does and gambling you have an opportunity to potentially win money you don't know how much you don't know how it's going to happen um, you have an unpredictable reward if you put your quarter into a slot machine and you pull the slot machine you don't know what's going to happen suddenly the right numbers hit or the right pattern hits and you can win maybe a dollar back. You're like, oh, cool, I won a dollar. So you try again, you put it right back in and then you lose all your money. So we can see that in gambling, but in shopping, we don't see it or we choose to ignore it. So whenever we put ourselves into a environment of abundance and an environment in which we can easily repeat things that have an unpredictable reward to them, it becomes very a very slippery slope. It becomes very easy to slide down that slope and to find ourselves in a position where we didn't necessarily want to be in. And social media, shopping, and health are just three, and gambling for that matter, are just four examples. So that's number one, is we are programmed for scarcity, but we are steeped in abundance. And unless we start to pay attention to the things in front of us, the opportunities in front of us that offer an unpredictable reward and how those things can grab us and pull us down a rabbit hole, then we could find ourselves in a bad position that we don't want to be in. Point number two, optimal stimulation makes us crave more instead of accept less. So the episode maybe last week or the week before that, addition by subtraction, that episode was prompted by this particular point. First, let's talk about optimal stimulation theory. So in the book, Michael Easter references this theory, which was brought to his attention by someone he interviewed in the book. I don't remember the guy's name. Optimal stimulation theory essentially says that human beings require well, animals in general, but human beings require a certain level of stimulation. And if we don't have that level of stimulation, then we will find things to help fulfill it. This has been part of humans for a long time. Again, but 100,000 years ago, we fulfilled our stimulation by having to go and hunt and then having to go and gather and then having to go and seek shelter. And that's how our stimulation was fulfilled. Now we don't have to do any of those things. And we have many more things that can, that can fill the stimulation gap, if you will. And because of that, we feel the need to add more things in order to fulfill, fulfill that stimulation need instead of potentially subtracting things to make us feel less anxious about things. So for instance, we have an abundance ways to entertain ourselves. We can 
pick up our phone and we have however many apps on our phone alone to entertain ourselves. If that's not entertaining enough, we can turn our TV on and we have, if we have cable, you have however many channels available to you to be able to entertain yourself. Or you have Netflix or Amazon or Apple TV or Disney Plus or whatever other option, subscription that you have in order to find something that is entertaining. So abundance of options, plenty of options to choose from. And so we start to gather more options because we think that if we have more options, we'll fill, like, we'll definitely find something that we want to watch or that we find entertaining if we have more options. But of course, we've talked about this in the past, just because we have more options doesn't mean that we're going to be happier or that we're going to find something that, that actually makes us, fulfills our need. As a matter of fact, it makes it less likely. The more options we have, the less happy we are with the option that we pick. So in having so many things available to us, we are trying to fulfill this need for stimulation. And so we just find more things to try and fill in the gap. Again, going back to the idea of social media, if we go on Facebook and we get bored of Facebook, we can close that down and we can pull up Instagram. And then we can scroll endlessly on Instagram until we do or do not feel stimulated. And then if we get bored of that, we can close that down and we can turn on our TV and we can pull up Netflix. And we don't have to touch the remote ever again after that because Netflix, once we get to the end of one episode, will immediately count down, very kind of them, from 10, count down from 10, and then just turn on the next episode. So literally, we just have stimulation everywhere. But, and yet, we are less happy, more anxious, and less fulfilled than ever. So why is that? Well, my argument is that it's because we are filling the stimulation gap with things that aren't exactly life-filling, if you will. It's just there. It's just available. And so we feel like we have to have it. We feel like we want it. And because everyone else is doing it, we feel like we need to jump in. All of the things I've already talked about are examples. Shopping is another example. Buying things, having a bigger house, having more cars, like all of this stuff is available. So we feel like we need to do it in order to fulfill our stimulation gap that we have. Now, again, these things aren't bad in and of themselves. And a level of all of them can be can make you happy, fulfilled, and all of those good things. So the question is, why has this not been as big of an issue in the past? Well, in the past, like I said, there weren't as many options to fulfill this stimulation gap. We didn't have digital, a digital footprint. We didn't have things online that were so easily accessible. We didn't have an abundance of food. We didn't have an abundance of car options or house options. We didn't have all of that. And because of that, we had to find other ways to stimulate, to fill, fulfill that stimulation gap, which typically were ways we would naturally live anyway. As kids, we would go outside and do what? Play in the woods, play a sports, I don't know, go out and climb trees, go out and push each other around. Like, that's what we would do as kids. 
as adults, a hundred years ago, what would we do? Like we wouldn't, couldn't sit around and watch TV because that thing, that wasn't available. So you had to go outside a hundred years ago, probably a lot of them were still farming to some degree or at least doing some sort of manual labor. And whenever they wanted entertainment, they went outside and they walked around the town or they went on a hike or they did something like that. Like you had to go outside and you had to do something. So this level of like, what makes us human, that stimulation is what our body wants and what our mind actually wants. The stimulation that we're feeding into our lives is artificial and adding more of it isn't necessarily making us happier and if anything, making us more anxious and less fulfilled. So figuring out how to unload some of that stuff, say no to more things, start to subtract things out of your life, and then add the things in that build a natural level of stimulation and potential growth in your life can help you move down a path that feels more fulfilling to you. So knowing and understanding that your body naturally wants some sort of level of stimulation, and that's why you feel this tendency, this drive to like pick up your phone and stare at your phone all the time or sit there and watch TV. Like that's stimulation, but it's not the stimulation that your body will thrive on. It's just a level of stimulation. It's like junk food versus quality whole food. Both of them will quote, feed your body in the sense that it gives you the energy that your cells need to survive and to keep you moving, but they don't do it in the same way at all. And eventually one of them will lead you to disease and the other one won't, as we'll see in a little bit. And it's the same thing when it comes to stimulation. One form of stimulation will fulfill that stimulation gap, but eventually it'll lead you to a place where you feel uneasy and you're just not happy with how things are. The other one will lead you to a place of growth and, growth and prosperity. So, Decide how you want to fill that, fulfill that stimulation gap so that you can feel good about how your life is and you can feel like you're moving in a direction in which you believe is purposeful. That leads us to point number three, which I already made a hint to this. Point number three, macros don't make you fat, ultra-processed foods make you fat. So in the chapter where he talks about food and the scarcity loop as related to food, he references a study. The study took, I believe it was 20 people, and over the course of a month, fed them two different diets. One diet for the first two weeks was ultra-processed foods, the standard American diet, or SAD. SAD. I was going to say sad diet, but that would be repeating myself. The standard American diet. The standard American diet is filled of 80% ultra-processed foods. In other words, foods that you, find, that you find in a box or in a bag that aren't real foods. They have been stripped of their nutrients and have been packaged as quote-unquote foods uh, to make you think that they're foods. So in those first two weeks, 
the group was fed ultra processed food in the second two weeks they were fed a primarily whole food diet in other words foods that have one ingredient for the ultra processed two weeks when those people were fed when the people were fed ultra processed foods um, so this part is important to understand the meals for these two diets were mat were matched calorie for calorie and nutrient to nutrient in other words if in the ultra processed meal there were 500 calories that same meal two weeks later would have then been replaced by um, a whole food or whole foods that had 500 calories if this meal with 500 calories had 20 grams of protein and 30 grams of carbs and 10 grams of fat that same meal over here would have been replaced with the same 20 grams of protein 30 grams of carbs 10 grams of fat so the meals were matched calorie for calorie and nutrient for nutrient what they wanted to find out is how people responded to the calories or how people responded to the different types of food. And what they found out was from a physical standpoint, people who ate ultra processed food gained fat and people who ate whole foods lost fat. From a input standpoint, people who ate the ultra processed food or when they ate the ultra processed food, they ate on average 500 more calories per day than they did whenever they ate the whole food. On average, over here with the ultra-processed food, they ate on average 500 more calories per day than they did when they ate whole food. So not only do you gain fat and you become unhealthy, unhealthy because of ultra-processed food, you also eat more because of ultra-processed food. Why? Well, the reason that we eat more ultra-processed food versus, not the only reason, but a big reason why we eat more ultra-processed food versus whole food is because of the way it's digested. Ultra-processed food has already been processed for us, so our bodies don't have to do the work, as much work, in order to break it down. With a whole food, if I eat a carrot, the body has to start from scratch and break it down from there. You have to chew it. Once it goes into your gut, it has to churn. It has to go to the intestine. It has to break it down and so on. With a cracker, it's a different thing. It's already been processed to a degree and kind of like mushed back together. So once you chew it, there's not as much processing that needs to happen. So you can eat it a lot faster before you feel full. The other thing that happens is more of those calories go into your body. The more processed a food is, the more calories your body will absorb or will put into itself. So with a carrot, whenever you eat the carrot, of course the carrot itself doesn't have a lot of calories, but even the calories that are in the carrot, some of them, more of them, are going to get eaten up, if you will, during the processing of it than a potato chip because the potato chip was already processed for you. It was already broken down for you. So when you eat it, it just takes less effort. And that's a big reason why simply switching from a processed food diet to a whole food diet will make you healthier, will help you lose weight, will help you feel better, will help your energy, will help all of those things. And that's another big reason also why calorie counting isn't necessarily the way people should start losing weight. It's not that I don't think that it's useful. Of course it's useful. Plenty of people have counted calories and lost lots of weight. So it's definitely useful. The problem is it's also very confusing for people. 
And whenever you make the shift, your body does not process whole food calories and ultra-processed food calories the same. So 100 calories over here of ultra-processed foods is not the same as the 100 calories over here of whole foods because they're not going to be, your body will use up more calories of the whole foods and you will feel hungrier from this 100 calories than you will from the ultra-processed 100 calories. That's simple biology. Calorie counting comes from a, the basis of calorie counting, if you will, comes from using a bomb calorimeter where they test how many calories are in a food by putting it into this bomb, a food bomb, if you will, and seeing how many calories of energy the thing gives off. The problem is your body is not a bomb calorimeter. It is a biological machine or biological thing, and it requires many different processes in order to process food. So that's why from a strictly energy standpoint, in other words, if you take two foods and you put them in a bomb calorimeter, yes, they are the same, like a calorie is a calorie at that point, but when you eat them, they are not the same because your body is different than some mechanical machine. So simply making the switch, this is important, simply making the switch from ultra-processed foods to whole foods, that alone, I promise you, will help you lose weight. Like that change alone, because you will naturally start eating less and your body has to use, it takes longer to digest the food, so you'll be hungry quicker and your body will use more calories now, it's not a substantial amount more, but your body will use more calories in processing the food alone. So macros are not the things that make you fat. It's not necessarily the carbs or the fat or the protein. We have vilified carbs. We have vilified fat. We have not vilified protein yet to make us fat. I'm waiting for the day, but I don't. hopefully it won't come. It is not the carbs necessarily or the protein or the fat. Like it is the ultra processing of the food and the combination and the way that it's put together and the, and that, like that's primarily, primarily the issue. That's primarily the issue. If you were to switch to strictly whole food diet and that's what you stuck with, but you still had like rice and potatoes and things like that, that were carbohydrates, but they were single ingredient carbohydrates, your body would respond much differently than you, if you had a bag of potato chips or you had a bag of crackers or any other ultra processed food. So macros are not the issue. It is the processing of the food that is worth paying attention to. That leads us to point number four. Point number four is the internet is making you dumber. So this has not only been shown through research over the course of years when before the internet was a thing and before smartphones were a thing and now, but it's also just been shown in 
comparing people who use the internet less today that, and people who use the internet more today. So in the book, Michael Easter talks about three ways in which the internet has changed our brains and changed our abilities as humans. Number one is it has reduced our focus. It has reduced our ability to focus. Why? Because whenever you train yourself a certain way, you react or you are that way regularly. On our phone, we can quickly switch from one thing to the next. Once we're finished on Facebook, we can quickly switch to the internet browser and search for something. And if we think of something during internet browser time, we can switch over and check our bank account. And if we're looking at our bank account and we see a random charge, we can go back to the internet browser and we can search the company and see what that company is about. And then we start looking at the company and we're like, oh, well, that's an interesting company. I wonder what they sell. And then we start looking at what they sell. And then we're like, well, I wonder what other handbags are out there. So we start searching for handbags on Amazon. And then we start looking and we see another company and another kind of, I don't know. Anyway, we can go down like 35 different rabbit holes in a matter of about three minutes just on our phone. And when we do that, we are training ourselves to not be focused, to not be able to do one task. And that's why so many people have a hard time reading books, reading books. John M. <laughs> she goes, yeah. <laughs> we have a hard time reading books, not because we're not a book reader. Like, yes, of course, there are, like, for a long time, I didn't like reading books. But ironically, it was mostly before smartphones and the internet. And it's just because I was a young kid or guy or whatever. I guess I'm still, I'm just an old kid now, but like, and I just didn't like reading books. Like you can't, the reason that you can't bring your attention to a book is because you are trained to be on a phone and the phone controls you and you don't control it. Even reading on a phone is different than reading on a book because when you read on a phone, the lines, the number of words in a line are much shorter and how do you usually read on a phone? You skim. You kind of jump down lines and you kind of you get the gist of the article or of the post or whatever. Like a post is meant to be short. So you just kind of like read the post and you get it and you move to the next one. And that transfers to reading the book or just living in life. And the reason that you're having trouble focusing on the book or in life is because of the way that you react or you respond and train yourself to communicate on the phone. So that's why our ability to focus has reduced significantly because the phone trains us to be unfocused. Also, we have reduced memory, especially short-term memory. There's a couple reasons why this is. In The Scarcity Brain, Michael Easter talks about, I'm trying to remember his example in particular. Uh, he talks about a study in which they took two groups of people and they gave them a piece of information maybe to find. And they said, go find this information. One group just went to Google. They were able to use their phones or laptops or something. They just went to Google, found the information and they got it real quick. The other group had to go to the library or pull out a book or actually do something besides search in order to find the information. Now, of course, the Google people, they found it much quicker, but 
I forget what it was, if it was the next day or maybe even later that day, they were given a quiz on the information and the people who used Google failed miserably at the quiz and the people who had to go and actually seek the information did a much better job of remembering the information and being able to relay it on the quiz. So the short moral of the story is because we have information so easily at hand, we allow the phone to be our memory instead of training ourselves to have a memory. And we wonder why we can't remember things. And people in their 40s and even 50s go, well, shoot, I must be getting old because I'm, I'm not able to remember where I put my keys or I'm not able to remember blah, 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 or I just did, you know, read this thing yesterday and I can't remember anything from it. It's because you have trained yourself to not remember anything because you allow the phone to be your brain. You allow the phone to be your, your system of memory. So because of that, we, our brains, our brains aren't trained to like short-term memory is something you develop. It's something that you build no, at no matter what age, like you build it, you can train it. So when you stop doing that, what happens? Your brain loses the ability to do that. Not loses it, but it reduces the ability to do that. Like when, when I was young, when I was a kid, when I was a whippersnapper, we, we had to memorize phone numbers. And I can tell you a lot of phone numbers from when I was a kid. I can tell you many less now because of this, because of the phone thing. And I'm not telling you that you need to memorize like all your phone numbers. But the point of the matter is like, it wasn't a problem remembering phone numbers back then. Like I could be told the phone number once and I could pretty much remember it. So when you train it, you can then do it. And yes, there's no point in remembering completely useless information. I would say there's no point in taking in useless information either, which is what most of us do. But there's no point in remembering useless information. But there is a point in training your mind to think about it. And instead of going, huh, I wonder what that answer is, and sitting and thinking about it for a second, or just being okay not knowing the answer, instead of doing that, um, we go to our phones and we pick up our phones and we immediately search for the answer. The answer. Oh, who is that actor that was in that one movie? I don't know. Let me sit and think about it. I don't know. I can't remember. Maybe I'll think about it later. Like, that's a very unusual thing anymore. Most people just pick up their phones and search for the answer, which seems dumb because it's a trivial thing, but it is training your mind to not have to think back and to process and to pull things out. And that reduces your ability to have memory and to pull out memory. The third way that our brains change or our abilities change as humans because of the internet and because of phones is we are anxious about social communication. So if you ever take a second to watch, especially anybody over under the age of like 20 or 25 and how they, like if you go up to them and you try and talk to them, just pay attention to like how they, how comfortable they are communicating. Like watch their eye contact, watch their hand gestures, watch their posture. Like are they 
pulling back or are they like relaxed and comfortable in the conversation? From my, this is on average, from my experience, like a lot of them aren't very comfortable and seem pretty anxious when it comes to communicating. And a lot of teenagers that I've tried to talk to when their parents are around, they let their parents do the talking for them and they don't do the talking. They look at mom and dad and they go, I don't know what this guy's, why this guy's trying to talk to me right now. I got a phone in my hand. I don't know what in the world he's doing. So like it, it's happened to adults too. And this is something that I rant about on my stories. It seems like every other day, at least recently, like we can't make eye contact with people. Like yesterday, I'm sitting on a bench and there's a corner where people are walking around and they can't see me until they get around the corner. And that's only about maybe 15, 20 feet away from me. So twice within like five minutes, first one was a lady. She walked around and it took her like three steps to turn and see me. She turned and looked at me and made eye contact with me and turned this way and immediately walk across the street. And I just watch her walk across the street. And it, there was no like nod, hi, nothing. Turn, walk. Like, okay, whatever. Two minutes later, same thing. Guy's walking around the corner. He turns and makes eye contact, turns, doesn't even look and starts walking. And here comes a car barreling around another corner and almost hits him. Like the dude was prepared to get hit. So he didn't have to stare me, like walk past me or look me in the eyes. Is that normal? Like, no, that's not normal. Like we have been trained to not be able to communicate because of our phones. The fact that you can't make eye contact with somebody and be comfortable just like staring at them. Jana. <laughs> Good job, girl. Lots of practice. Jana told me, well, this is because she was an awkward teenager, but Jana told me when she was 15 years old, when I first started training her, she said, she told her mom like that night, like I, he stare, he makes eye contact a lot. It's, he just makes eye contact a lot. I don't know what to do, what to do with it. Anyway, that's because she was an awkward teenager, but that's another story. So like, our phones have trained us to not be able to communicate with people and communicating with people is what is required in order to live life. So we have to be able to do it. So if you want to be able to have more focused, have a better memory and be able to feel comfortable in a social setting without feeling awkward, it makes sense to figure out when and how to put down your phone. That's number four. The internet is making us dumber, which leads us to number five. Number five is dissatisfaction is a symptom of being human. This comes from the chapter on happiness, which is a great chapter. He talks about his experience going to a Benedictine monastery, which if I can pull this out of my brain real quick, uh, St. Benedict created, I want to say he built five monasteries. I could be way off on that number. And basically they are there at the monastery, the monks are there to like just work and pray. They pray like seven times a day as a group. Like first one's at like 2.45 in the morning and then like five in the morning and then seven in the morning or something like that. Like pretty crazy, pretty dedicated. 
And in between that time, they're either eating or working or sleeping. And that's what they do. And he basically finds through his time there that they're the happiest people he's ever been around and the most content people he's ever been around. And how can that be when all they do is work and pray and eat? So not that any of that's a bad thing. Um, But anyway, I thought about making this point. I thought about naming this point that happiness is found in the work because they're one of the things I brought from that chapter is that if once you find something that you, how do I say this? Once you find work that not necessarily that you're passionate about, because I think a lot of people look for something that like has to be something that I'm passionate about. Well, that's not necessarily the case. It just has to be something that you at least believe in. And then you can like be passionate about it after that. So once you find work that you believe in, that you're like, oh, this is just a job that I have to have. Like, if that's it, then this will never happen. But if you find work that you believe in, like, happiness comes in doing the work and moving the mission forward. And that's why I believe, and I was going to name this last one, happiness is found in the work. But at the same time, he brings out the point that our society the way that our society is with the abundance that's available to us believes that at any point in your day when you are dissatisfied, you are not a good person. He makes the point that dissatisfaction brings feelings of inadequacy and frustration because when we feel dissatisfied in the moment, because of the abundance that is around us and because of the perceived happiness and satisfaction of everyone else on Facebook or on Instagram or on whatever other platform, we feel inadequate from our dissatisfaction and we get frustrated because of it. Now, this is all human beings, to be sure, except maybe the monks at the St. Benedictine Monastery. But... That dissatisfaction, although we want to convince ourselves, means that we are inadequate as a person, is just a symptom symptom of being a person. It's just what happens when when you are a human being. When you're a human being, like there are a couple of things that come with being a human being. One of them is that every once in a while you'll be dissatisfied. Not like every once in a while, like once a month, but like once a day, once an hour, I don't know, sometimes once an hour, sometimes maybe once a day. Sometimes if you're really lucky, it's just a couple times a week. But it's going to be more often than what we want to believe that it is. And so in those moments of feeling dissatisfied, we have to recognize what we actually have available to us. And if you think about what we have available to us, then maybe you can go, well, damn, life is actually pretty freaking good because today regardless of what you see on TV and what you see in front of you, there are less people dying and there is less, there is less crime in the world today than ever before. There, there are less people dying than ever before in history, ever, ever today, ever. You can go look up those statistics. You can go find them. Michael Easter actually did a post on these, on those statistics a while ago. You can go find that now. So, 
we have, we, we're further along in technology than ever before. We literally carry around a thing that a hundred years ago, people would have gone, what you do what with that thing, that box? Like, what are you talking about? You do, they wouldn't even be able to fathom all the things you could do with it. Like, they were well, waiting for the milkman to come back around. You see what I'm saying? Like, the amount of stuff that we have, the amount of things available to us, the progress that humanity has made to, to even think to be dissatisfied at all, not at all, sorry. It is a symptom of being human. You'll feel the feeling. But to dive into that dissatisfaction and try and make it a part of you has no rational bearing. Because we have everything that we need. Now, if you want to move to things that you want, that's a different story. And you should. And you should strive for them. And you should work to make them a part of your life as best you can. I would say that to anybody. That's what I try to do. I'm sure that's what everyone else tries to do. And that's totally fine. But to attach your happiness and your satisfaction to that, to attach it to that, is dangerous. And so recognizing that dissatisfaction is just a symptom of your humanity should make you happy for having being able to feel that symptom of your humanity. Because you have what you need. You have what you need. So those are our five points. Again, a great book by Michael Easter, Scarcity Brain. Make sure you go out and grab that bad boy. I'll make sure to put a link in the description. Quick, very quick review of the five points. Number one, we are programmed for scarcity but steeped in abundance. Number two, optimal stimulation makes us crave more instead of accepting less when a lot of times less is actually the answer to our happiness. Number three, macros don't make us fat. Ultra-processed food makes us fat. Changing, strictly changing from an ultra-processed food diet to a whole food diet will make a huge change in your life. Number four, the internet is making you dumber. And number five, satisfaction is a symptom of being human. Which brings me to point number six. Make sure that you hit that subscribe button so that you can get more of these books, book reviews, whenever we put them out. And until next time, here's to your success in health and fitness mastery.